Good afternoon and welcome to today's class that we're going to be learning about. First of all, that we're now in the month of Elul, which is the month uh, beginning and preceding, I should say, Rosh Hashanah. And as we get ready for the high holidays, we also look into the Torah reading to see how the two correlate, because as we know, in Judaism, a time and something that is read in the Torah, they all have a correlation and they all have some type of connection. So therefore, what we're going to do today is look at the correlation and understand and appreciate this week's Torah reading with the time that it's read. The month of Elul is, uh, begins, is spelled in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed. The first letter being Aleph, which is the first letter of the alphabet. It's odd that the last month of the year begins with the first letter of the alphabet. There were those that used to say that is because that out of all the 11 months of the year, when a person prepares himself in the last month appropriately, then you will know that they'll be able to begin the new year appropriately as well. But as we look deeper into this month of Elul, as we know that the month of Elul, the king is in the field, it is a time when all of us have an opportunity to approach Almighty God and ask for repentance and understand and realize the greatness and the awesomeness of the holy days coming ahead. It also gives us the opportunity to have a moment of self-reflection and a moment of understanding and appreciation of who we are and what brought us to where we are today so that we are able to appreciate and understand and recognize what we have done and how we can become better in the year ahead. But even more so, what we will talk about today is what causes a person to sometimes do something wrong. Every single person is caused and affected by certain triggers in life. Certain things trigger us to do things, good or bad or indifferent, but we are all triggered by certain type of ideas or by certain type of personalities or by certain type of things that we have come across which cause us to do certain type of behaviors. One of the great, very famous publicists and marketing specialists in the uh, early 20th century was a fellow by the name of Claude Hopkins. He was a very famous uh, marketing professional, wrote many books on marketing. He is one of the people who brought Bissell uh, or whether it was Palomal of Soap, uh, Quaker Oats, the tires of Goodyear. He was one of the very big geniuses in marketing of how he was able to bring people to understand when it came to new products and make them a staple and make it something which was. He was uh, Schlitz beer. He was the one that came along and came up with the idea to market it and said we clean our bottles with steam, every, even though every single other beer company did it as well. But he was the one that decided to accentuate that point and he became like, an, it exploded. The same idea is also, there's a story told that once this fellow, a friend of uh, Claude Hopkins came to him and says, I have this unbelievable product that I want to bring to the fore, which is toothpaste. And toothpaste with the flavor of mint. Now, and he, the name of his uh, item, which was called at the time, was Pepsodent. And this uh, friend of his told him that the problem is that the health of Americans Majority of Americans were not brushing their teeth at the time, but that, and unfortunately, because of people were becoming a little more affluent, their food was having a little more sugar, and the decadence of their teeth was becoming really bad, and the decay because of the sugar and because of people were not brushing their teeth and was 
probably not even 10% of people at the time were brushing their teeth. It was so bad that even in the wars and the soldiers were being affected by it, their bad breath, their teeth rotting, it was becoming a great problem. And the problem is, how do you convince people to all of a sudden start brushing their teeth? What are you going to tell them that's going to change? It's going to be able to um, change the nature of people to become into a new routine of brushing their teeth every morning and evening. And here comes a product called Pepsodin. And if he would be able to get the product into people's homes, get them into the routine of brushing their teeth, this would be able to change the market, help people's teeth, and as well, bring a lot of money for the company. So this fellow, Claude Hopkins, decided that he's going to start analyzing and he was reading all these books about dentistry and he read about this concept that people have a film that because of not brushing your teeth and because of the food that we eat, it creates a film on our teeth and that film causes tooth decay and that causes the teeth to be able to rot in cavities and everything else. So he decided he created a marketing strategy which was one marketing strategy said shows like a person wiping their tongue across their teeth with the decay coming off and showing that there's a film on their teeth. And then the other ad shows if you use Pepsodent, all of a sudden by brushing your teeth, you'll have beautiful, brighter white teeth. Now, which person doesn't want to have white teeth? Especially with marketing it towards women, you can have white teeth just by brushing your teeth with Pepsodent. It took off unbelievably that all of a sudden, Within a matter of months, the company ran out of material of uh, making this Pepsodent and it became unbelievable. What Claude Hopkins said, what I learned from this whole marketing strategy of how, what I did with Pepsodent and the concept of toothpaste, was how do we change the nature of people? How do we change the routine of people? In order to change the routine of people, we have to give them a trigger. We have to show them something that over here there's a problem and here's a solution. This is the trigger. This is what's happening. You're having a film against your teeth. And here's the solution. Have toothpaste and there's your results. If we show clearly to people, this is the problem. Here are your results. We are able to get people to buy the product, enjoy the product, and all of a sudden become change people's habitual behaviors and their routines. The same way when we tell people that you need to brush your teeth and today, it's the household concept. Which person doesn't brush their teeth? And it changed. Why? Because people were triggered and say, one second, I have that film. How can I get rid of it? So too, everything in life have triggers. And whatever we do, our reaction to something is a reaction to a trigger that happens. Modern day psychologists all discuss the concept of what triggers people to behave in certain ways. And the way to it, so the same way triggers cause us to do certain behaviors, if we eliminate the triggers, we will eliminate doing certain behaviors as well. And therefore, what we're going to learn about today is how we can eliminate certain triggers, thereby helping us to become stronger, healthier people and being more in control of our emotions and in turn by our actions as well. So when we are able to stand firm on our triggers, and not allow those triggers to determine our life, or not allow those triggers to be ignited to begin with, then we don't have to go to the next step and try to withhold what that trigger is trying to cause. But how do we do that? To be able to change people's behaviors and patterns and routines and nature is one of the most difficult things. And there, with this, we turn to this week's Torah reading. 
This week's Torah reading is the name of Shoftim, which means judges. All of a sudden, Moses comes to the Torah reading, begins this week's Torah reading, and, and it's interesting to note that this Torah reading is always read in the first week of the month of Elul. This week we read it on the first of Elul, the first, the first week, of course, is Rosh Chodesh. Yesterday was Rosh Chodesh, and today is the second of Elul. And as we're in the month of Elul preparing for the high holidays, we begin with the Torah reading by Moshe telling the Jewish people, Shoftim v'shoytrim tita lecha Judges and policemen, you should place by all your gateways. Now what is this Torah telling us of here? What is the commandment that Moses is telling the Jewish people, number one? And what does this have to do with the month of Elul, as we will see? So let's start first with analyzing the verse, trying to better understand what the verse is telling us and what the commandment that Moshe was telling the Jewish people. Moshe tells the Jewish people, Shaiftim v'shaitrim, judges and policemen, Titan lecha, you shall give to you b'chol sha'arecha in all your gateways. Number one, why to you? What's the singular terminology here? Seemingly, the appointment of judges and policemen was a communal thing. Not every single person went to put up a judge and a policeman. Imagine if every individual had their own judge and policeman. That's the greatest anarchy that you can create. So what does this mean over here? That every single person has to have a judge and policeman. So of course we're going to talk about the great Kabbalists and the great uh, ethicists of all time who, who explain this. But first, let's understand the simple interpretation, and from there we'll go and dig a little deeper into the interpretation. The first and simple interpretation, as it's brought down in Code of Jewish Law and by the great codifiers of Jewish law, explain the concept of appointing judges, of the responsibility of how the concept of judges and the hierarchy of judges exists within the Jewish people. Maimonides codifies it as follows. He says there was the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court which was in, the, uh, in Jerusalem, which that's where all the Jewish people's complaints, if you want to talk of the highest caliber, were brought. And that was the head of the Sanhedrin. They were there and there were 71 judges. And they were responsible for all the great things that happened amongst the Jewish people. For example, they were the ones that determined when they went out to war. They were the ones that determined when a person, to, when they had to appoint a king. They were the ones that appointed all the different things that had to do with the entire Jewish people as a whole was the responsibility of the 71 judges in the Lishka Sagazis where they would sit in Jerusalem. Then there was a second level court, a seventh tier court. It's like you have it today in the legal system. You have the Supreme Court, then you have the State Supreme Court, the Appellate Court, and then the local courts. The same idea. So you have the Supreme Court, which was the Sanhedrin, which sat in Jerusalem, and by the Holy Temple, that's what the court of 71. Then there was a localized court, which was a court of 23, that any community that had more than 120 uh, Jewish families living that to have a court of 23. And that court of 23, they had the right to be able to decide capital punishment. They had the right to decide financial matters, penalties, penalizations, and to be able to just have law and order and justice within the community that they lived in their immediate area. They did not have jurisdiction on the entire land of Israel. They had jurisdiction in their immediate area, while the Sanhedrin had jurisdiction on the entire Jewish nation. Then there was even a smaller court in a city that was a smaller amount of Jews. In every single town and hamlet of Jews together, there had to be a rabbinic tribunal of 
three judges, which we would call today a Bethdin, and they were responsible for mainly financial matters. So if there was financial litigation between one person and another, they would have to go to the rabbinic tribunal at the time, which was the rabbinic court of the three, and they would decide, they would do financial litigations. That was their main thing. So over here, the Torah tells us, judges and policemen you should put in your gateways. That means in every single town, hamlet, city, and population of Jewish people, there should be a rabbinic authority of judges who can litigate to whatever extent their jurisdiction covers. That's the simple interpretation. But the question still remains, even according to these codifiers in Jewish law, why then does the Torah say, Moshe tells the Jewish people, judges and policemen, you shall place, you in singular term. Who's the you? Who's the one that has to put it? Who's Moshe talking to in singular term that they're obligated to do it? Even more so, you go to the next step, it says, Titen lecha, you shall place bechol she'arecha in all your gateways. What's the gateways here? Where does it, it refer to gateways? So the codifiers of Jewish law explain that the concept of gateways here is that the rabbinic tribunal should sit in the center of town. We find this terminology of gateway is used in other places as well, where they would have to, for example, when any person was taught a lesson, whether it talks about the rebellious child or the, or the promiscuous woman, in any of these cases where they say they would bring them in the center of town, the terminology is called gateway because that's where everybody would gather. Same idea is that the rabbinic court had to be situated in a place that was accessible for everybody. So like this, nobody should hesitate and say, it's too far for me to go litigate my matter. Everybody should have that accessibility to be able to go to litigate their issue. So over here, we have the simple interpretation of what this verse means is A, the mitzvah to appoint judges, as well as enforcers to enforce, because a judge, a case is only as good as the enforcer. If you can't enforce the law, the law is nothing worth. So therefore, there has to be those who litigate the law, those who enforce the law, and they had to be made in every single municipality of Jewish people. And why? As it was used the terminology, that it should be easily accessible for everybody. That's the simple interpretation of what this verse means. But as we always know that the Torah has of it many different facets of understanding, there is a simple interpretation, and there is the deeper interpretation, and we always look to look for the soul to pry underneath the skin and to see what is the Torah really deeply saying over here, and especially as we mentioned, that this is read always in the first, month, the first week in the month of Elul, and getting us ready for the high holidays, so what is this telling us? Even more so, that even the simple interpretation here demands something deeper. The very fact that Moshe tells it to every single Jew in a singular term, shayftim v'shayftim titan lecha, be given to you, that means the Torah is talking to every single one of us individually, understanding and appreciating that this is a commandment, not only for the entire populace of Jewish people that they have to anoint and appoint judges, but this is actually something for every single person. And with this, we go to a little deeper, which is the Medrash, which is the explanatory angle of the Torah. And one of the explanatory people on the Torah, one of the commentators explained to us, the Medrash says as follows, that the Torah over here is giving us a deeper message. And in fact, the message is not necessarily for the average layman, 
but the message is telling the enforcer and the judge. Shaiftim v'shaitrim, a judge and an enforcer. Titen lecha, take to heart to yourself. Bechol sharecha. You want to enforce a law? You want to be able to teach somebody what the law is? Practice it yourself. Be a person, a model of what it means to be able to practice that law that you are about to enforce it to litigate to your uh, people that are standing in front of you. Shaiftim v'shaitim tita lacha, the Torah is telling us deeper. And this is not only for any judge, you don't have to be a judge or an enforcer, but even if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, any person who's going on to tell something to somebody else, the best way that you can tell somebody something, or teach or enforce, or make an impression on somebody, is if you do it yourself. Not only that, if you're going to go and tell somebody what the law is, and you yourself are not doing it, or not keeping by it, for whatever reason it may be, how do you think that's going to make an impact? How do you think that's going to change the individual who you're trying to make the law on? If that guy can make excuses, he'll make excuses as well. The Talmud brings a fascinating story to, uh, to point out this concept, which is as follows. The Talmud says there was a story about a fellow Rabbi Yanai, who was a very big Talmudic judge in Talmudic times. And there's a story about Rabbi Yanai who had his tree. And this is a common issue in Long Island as well. They had his tree which was on his property, but the tree was overreaching into the public domain. And there was another individual who also had a tree, who his tree was overreaching in the public domain. And the people came to complain to Rabbi Yane about this fellow's tree who was overreaching in the public domain. And what was their complaint? When we ride our camels, these branches are getting in the way and we have to veer off the side of the road and it causes problems for the camels, it causes problems for the road and things happen because of that, there's a problem. And not only that, the branches fall off and they damage the goods that we're carrying, hurt the camel and therefore we demand that this individual who has his tree leaning over into the public domain, cut its branches so it shouldn't be affected, uh, so it shouldn't be a nuisance onto the public. Rabbi Yanai hears the case, and he tells the individuals, the litigants, he says, come back tomorrow, I'll have an answer for you. Meanwhile, that day, he calls over one of his people, and he says, can you do me a favor? Can you go to my house, cut down the branches that are blocking, that are hanging over the public domain? So he went, the guy cut down his branches of Rabayana. The next day, the litigants come before Rabayana. Rabayana tells this individual, you have an obligation to cut down the branches that are leaning over the public domain. The fellow turns to Rabayana and says, one second, how can you dare tell me that I should cut down my branches? You have the same problem. Your branches are also in the public domain. Rabayana says, excuse me, go check. You know what? If I cut my branches, then you cut your branches. If I didn't cut my branches, then you don't have to cut your branches. And he went and he saw Rabbi Yanni's branches were cut, and he went and he cut his branches. The Talmud asks, why didn't Rabbi Yanni cut it initially? Why didn't, if it was a problem, if this is an issue, why didn't Rabbi Yanni cut his branches to begin with? Why did he have to wait for somebody to complain? And only then did he cut his branches. So the Talmud says, because Rabbi Yanni believed that actually the people on the street, 
were enjoying the branches from the shade. This was protecting them. And therefore, he never cut his branches. Only now that he heard that there were people who were complaining about it, so he understood that the people on the street, the public, does not like the branches. He says, okay, then I have to cut it. And so why didn't they come complain to Rabbi Yanai? Why are they only going to the other guy? Because they were, had respect for Rabbi Yanai. He said they didn't want to tell him anything. But Rabbi Yanai himself said, if I see that people, this is a nuisance to the public, if I want to demand something from somebody else, I got to do it myself first. I cannot demand somebody else to do something if I don't behave that way. In the words of the Talmud was, First correct yourself, then go correct others. And Rabbi Yanai says, I cannot tell that person to go cut his branches if my branches are doing the same thing. The same idea as the Torah is telling us as well. If I want to be able to be an enforcer of any type of law, if I want to be a preacher of any type of law, or of any type of code of ethics, or of any values, I need to keep those values myself. If I don't keep those values myself, or I don't have even a slight iota of understanding and appreciation for what those values and ethics are, how can I go and preach them? The biggest lesson that you can teach somebody is by modeling. The best way that you can give over a subject or an idea is that you yourself should behave that way. That lesson is not only for rabbis, that lesson is not only for teachers, but it's for every single one of us. For every single person they should know that if you want to be somebody of value, if you want to teach something to somebody, model it, be it. Don't just say it, actually behave that way. That is the best lesson and best ability to give it on to the next generation. While that's a good midrashic explanation, it still doesn't give us the real understanding of what's to you. Why is it a singular term? Who was Moshe addressing when he said, Shoftim v'shotrim, judges and policemen, you shall have in every single one of your gateways and to every one of your tribes. Why was he talking to every single individual, every single Jew he was addressing? What was he telling us? And with this we go a little deeper and we look into the esoteric, into the words of the Arizal, and the words of the great ethicists of the students of the Arizal, Rabbi Chaim Vital, who is known as the under the great student of the Arizal and the Shalah Kaddish, the Rabbi Shaya Levi Horowitz, and all the great Kabbalists who explain and understand this verse to mean something even deeper. And has brought that also in many Hasidic texts numerous times. And who is it really referring to? It's to every single one of us. And in fact, in the beginning of this week's Torah reading, Moshe is addressing every single Jew, every single Jew, and into every single facet of their life. Because all of us have gateways. And those gateways are the four gateways of our senses. How we, as people, accumulate knowledge. How we ingest everything around us. We have the brain understands and recognizing everything that happens in the world. But the brain utilizes four gateways where all those entry points where are those that are used to be able to gain the intellect to understand it. And those four entryways are vision, hearing, smell, and speech. 
while each one of these four gateways are independent gateways on their own. And if you look at all of these gateways, they seemingly don't look like an action. There's no single action that is retained to any of them. It's smelling, speaking, seeing, hearing. You can think, what am I doing wrong? I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just seeing something. I'm just hearing something. I'm just saying something. Seemingly, there's no action attached to them. A person may say, what's the big deal? It's my four senses. I haven't killed anybody with it. But what does the Torah tell me? The Torah comes and tells us that these are your four gateways that are the most important that each one of them need to be a judge and a policeman to guard and to examine what enters any of these ways because these four things are the gateway to causing all evil. Which four again? Hearing, vision, speaking, and smelling. And we're going to go through them. What is the Torah telling us? The Torah is telling us, really, the Torah says, and what Moshe was telling the Jewish people, that if God tells you you're not allowed to do something, you probably shouldn't be looking at it either. And if God tells you you're not allowed to speak about it, you shouldn't be listening to it either. And if you're not allowed to do it, then you're not allowed to speak about it, then you shouldn't be sniffing it either. What does it mean, smell? Smell is the most level that is connected to the brain, to the intellect. Thinking about it, contemplating about it. And therefore, a person has to be able to govern and to watch and recognize that when the, what's the most refined and spiritual point of the senses is smell. So what I smell, seemingly, has my, it relates to my thought. To my, and my thoughts, even though it's seemingly not an action, it's not even a speech, but it's my thoughts that conjure within me the action, the speech, and whatever it may be. And therefore, even those things, even these things, which I'm not allowed to speak about them, or even things which are not prohibited, I'm allowed to speak about them. But we know that idle gossip or idle talk, what it leads to. And over here we look in the Hasidic textbooks and they tell us, explain to us and give us, and show how every single one of these things, every single one of these senses, properly guarded, properly enforced, protect us and give us the ability to fend off all the evil impulses or the, the terrible impulses which can come to a person. And for that, we find in many different places, if we look during Ethics of Our Fathers, how it talks about the value of silence, the value of considering yourself abstaining, or whatever it may be. And what does this mean? And let's take a little example. If we look at all these things over here, one may ask, what's wrong? I'm not doing anything wrong. There's no uh, biblical prohibition. What am I doing wrong? And therefore, a person can think, you know what? Let me at least enjoy a little bit part of my life. Why do I have to govern what I think about? Why do I have to govern what I speak about? Why do I have to govern what I smell about or listen? Let me have a little bit of access to something. Let me at least enjoy in my mind something. And over here the Torah tells us something very interesting. Moshe is telling the Jewish people, if you recall, for the past four weeks, Moshe is telling them their way of repentance, rebuking them for all the things they did wrong. He's reminding them they're about to enter the land of Israel. 
He's explaining to them how does one stand up to the challenges of the day. You know the best way to stand up to the challenges of the day? Is to never even enter the challenge. Why put yourself in a place where you can be tested? Why put yourself in a place where you can have a trigger to something which may be doing wrong? Why put yourself in a situation and in a scenario where you have to hold yourself back? Just don't go there to begin with. You know the story about the very famous metaphor they give. There was this couple that bought this beautiful uh, condo right on the ocean. Paid millions of dollars for it. They made it beautiful. They renovated it. They put in the beautiful uh, carpets and wall-to-wall. Beautiful. It was an unbelievable place. They were happy in their new apartment, in their new condo. But because they put in so much into the condo, there was a lot of people that wanted to buy it now. But they weren't interested in selling so this one guy told him, says, can I buy your, your, your condo? He says, I'm not interested in selling. He says, you know what? I use this beach very often. And every time I come, I need a place to hang up my robe. Can I just pay a million dollars to put a hook in your condo just to hang up my robe? I'll come there. I'll hang up my robe there. That's all. You don't have to worry about it. It's a big deal. A million dollars for a hook. Who would deny it? So he comes there the first day. Hangs up his robe, comes out, takes it. Comes the next day, brings his family, says, did you see the, my latest investment? Look at my hook that I have here. The next day, brings his friends, did you see my hook that I have here? And every single day, he would come and admire his latest investment of his hook. Until finally, the people that owned the condo couldn't take it anymore, and they sold him the condo. What happened? What's the point of the moral of the story? What they sell him? Just a little millimeter to hang up access they gave access to a hook they gave access to an idle thought the moment we give access to an idle thought we automatically allow it to enter everything else in who was the first genius that figured out this concept was the biggest publicist of all the inter- the guy that was interested in his own self promotion bilam the hater of the jews he couldn't curse the jews he was forced to bless the jews so what did he do i'll get them at their where they're vulnerable. How am I going to make them vulnerable? They're holy Jews living in the desert, basking emotions, glory. How am I going to make them promiscuous? How am I going to get them to idolatry? How am I going to create a vulnerability? How am I going to get into their mind? How can I create a trigger, Bilam thought? So the Talmud tells us this was his idea. First marketing strategy today, they use it in every single store. You never see, you know, in stores they put certain items. It's called... Um, Hook items, something to get you into the store. They make something on an extreme sale where they may even lose money, but they put it in the back of the store because by the time you get it, you're already buying seven other things before you get there. That's exactly what Bilam did. Bilam, what he did was, he had these old women who weren't, let's say, attractive, let's say, so he, the Jewish people weren't concerned about it, that they were selling linen, they were selling garments. So, oh, you want to buy just saleswomen selling things. So they... People were interested in buying some stuff. Said, ah, you want to buy it? The place you have to try it on to see if you like it is you have to go inside the tent to try it on. When they come inside the tent, over there already were sitting young promiscuous women offering them wine, and that's how they got them to be able to. And unfortunately, what happened to that, we know, that caused them to cause idolatry, caused the story of Zimri, where Pinchas came along, and everything else that happened. But what was his strategy? I won't tell them to do something wrong. Offering them to buy some garments. Offering them some wine. What can be wrong? But that one thing led to the other. The same idea is also the evil inclination that Tanya tells us. 
the evil inclination will never tell somebody, do go survivals, do eat treif, eat something non-kosher, or do something which is not allowed, because it knows that the Jewish instinct of the Jew is to say, no way, the Torah prohibits it. So what does the evil inclination do? The evil inclination comes along and says, you know what? For the sake of peace, or you should only try this, only smell it, only think about it, only look at it, you're going to feel better. And slowly but surely it gets you to trigger, be excited about it. Jewish law, on the positive side, says the same exact thing. There's a whole concept when it comes to the prohibitions of the Torah. The prohibitions of the Torah, which we know about, tell us, there are certain perimeters that we less set that a person shouldn't come to do the prohibition. So take, for example, when it comes to a Nazarite. A Nazarite is not allowed to consume any wine or beer or any substance of wine. But the Torah uses a terminology and says, from, the, the Torah uses a terminology and says, from wine and any derivative of wine, he should abstain. And then it says he should not drink. Why couldn't the Torah just say it in one word? Don't drink it, then I'll know you're abstaining from it. Over here the sages are telling us because we have a very important lesson that when a Nazarite comes to a vineyard we have to tell him go around, make a detour. Why? He's just walking through the vineyard. What's the big deal? Because the moment he walks through the vineyard he starts having an inkling, it triggers him and all of a sudden he may come to half. So what do we tell him? Walk around the vineyard because you shouldn't even be triggered by it. You know like the story about the guy that was on a diet but he's driving by the bakery and he smells the beautiful, delicious smell coming from the bakery and he says, I gotta have a roll. I gotta have a Danish. Oh, but I'm on a diet. So he continues walking, but all the, continues driving. But all of a sudden he sees a guy pull out and he has a parking space. He says, oh, it must be a sign from heaven. I have to have a Danish. We all legitimize and create certain legitimizations to any of our weaknesses. And then we have these triggers which cause us to fall prey to our weaknesses. And therefore, we always have to remember what that trigger is, what's causing the trigger, and what may cause us to have that weakness. And this we also understand, you know, it says that a person doesn't do any sin unless an evil folly, a spirit of folliness comes into them. What's the spirit of folly? What does that mean? Because when a person does something wrong, a person may say, what do you want? <laughs> I, got, I was overcome by nonsense. It wasn't really me. I wasn't thinking about it. What does the sages tell us? No, 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 no. You put yourself in a certain vulnerable position. You allowed the spirit of folly to overcome you. You allowed yourself to be triggered. That was your mistake. Why did you walk to that place to begin with if you know that you have an issue? If you're an alcoholic, don't walk by the bar. If you have a gambling issue, don't go to, don't go to the casino and say, what should I do? I was compelled to gamble. If you have an addiction, recognize that you are vulnerable. We're all vulnerable, each in our own way. We have our own triggers. And what the Torah tells us is, avoid those triggers. Don't even start with those triggers so you won't have to come with it. With this, we come to the month of Elul. And the month of Elul tells us, as we prepare for Rosh Hashanah, as we prepare for the high holidays, comes the commandment of shayftim v'shayitim, judges and policemen you should put in all your gateways. The commentaries explain to us and say this is the first step of repentance. This is the first step of preparing for the high holidays. This is the first step of returning to God. 
is to recognize your vulnerability, what causes you to distance yourself from God. What is your vulnerabilities and your triggers that cause you? And how do we protect it? Is by looking out and watching over our five senses. By watching our senses and making sure that we don't even take foot and we don't even get into that place. We are able to watch out and protect those senses that they don't even become vulnerable to the triggers. But you'll notice something very interesting. How many days is it from the first of Elul until Yom Kippur? Is 40 days. And if you notice, many, we spoke about this a few weeks ago, the concept of the 40 days that exist from the general concept that in Judaism, the number 40 is something which is very common. Those seven is a cycle, and we have eight. But the number 40 is a number which is mentioned, if you look in the book of Deuteronomy, the, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, the number 40 um, is mentioned numerous times. Like in the second Torah reading of Eschanon, uh, Moshe mentions the number 40 uh, probably three, four times. And we find what it was about. The Moshe goes up into the mountain 40 days and not 40 nights to get the Torah. Then he's there 40 days and 40 nights to receiving the Torah. Then he prays 40 days, 40 days for repentance. Then he goes up again another 40 days and 40 nights. So we see this whole concept of 40. In general, the number 40 is found many times. But what is this number 40? So if we look, just an interesting point you have. In all the three facets of Judaism, number 40 is something very particular. For example... In Torah, the Torah tells us that a person doesn't fully understand what their teacher said until they're 40 years old. A person is not supposed to give halachic authorities or halachic analysis until he has 40 years under his belt, so to speak, until he is the age of 40, because that's when you fully understand and appreciation. So the number 40 is something which is of unique character in the study of Torah. In prayer, there are also the concept of 40. For example, Moses, it says somebody who prays for 40 days, his prayers are definitely answered. Where do we know this from? From Moses, where Moses talks about that he prayed to God for 40 days to be able to ask for forgiveness for the Jewish people. Moses was a person that the Talmud compares to a per, a, an individual who utilized a lengthy amount of time of praying and gives it a number of 40 days. We find other places where people say, saying the Tillim for 40 days, but in general, seemingly 40 days is this formula for an absolute prayer that will always be answered. We also come to the concept, the third level of Judaism, which is repentance, returning to God. Also has the concept of 40. For example, from the month of Elul, today was Rosh Chod, yesterday was Rosh Chodesh Elul, the first of Elul until Yom Kippur, is the 40 days of repentance. We also have um, any type of uh, when God came along and did the flood, how many days was the flood for? It was 40 days that it rained, 40 days and 40 nights that it rained. We have a mikvah. The measurement and the size of the water that has to be in a mikvah is 40 measurements of water. Then we also have Ramosha. How long was he a leader for the Jewish people? For 40 years. King Solomon, how long was he a leader for the Jewish people? 40 years. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, one of the greatest Talmudic scholars, was a leader for 40 years. Rabbi Akiva was 40 years. Even in the Torah, when it talks about giving lashes, even though it was 39 lashes, the Torah uses the terminology, 40 minus 1. When it talks about the abrogations on Shabbos, what the cardinal laws on the observance of the Shabbos is, 40 minus 1, using a number 40. So what is number 40? Why number 40? Hasidism explains to us as follows. That 40 is what it takes to create a new entity. 40 is where you leave your previous situation 
and now you have a new entity. The difference between a person from a work and from the time of conception until the first 40 days is when even halachically, if a person wants to pray for the gender of their child, up, up until the first 40 days, they have the ability to pray for the gender of that child. Because until 40 days, the child is not considered truly formed, made into a new entity. Once the child is 40 days old, that means from the fetus is 40 days old, it's considered what the fetus is, already a full, a full, a full uh, fetus, and, is not, and praying for the gender is considered a false prayer. The same idea is also when we talk about 40. 40 is what it takes for something to be created. 40 is a days of creation. If you're talking about for the character to be created. We see the same thing as also in Moses. Moses went up to the mountain 40 days. Every single time he went up, it changed who he was. The first time Moses went up to the mountain, he became a person to study Torah. Until then, no human being was able to take the physical and the spiritual and merge it together. He brought, he merged heaven and earth together. That was the first 40 days. The next 40 days, Moshe was there to pray for the Jewish people to take away the sin that they have done at the golden calf. 40 days. He had to create a new entity within the Jewish people, removing the sin. And then his last 40 days was again bringing the Jewish people and himself back to a state of they were before the sin. So again, you see the number 40 over here was something unique in quality that it creates a new entity. Same idea is also by the flood. The 40 days and the 40 nights that are rained on the world brought the world to a new existence. It cleansed it from whatever it was beforehand and made it now a new person. The same idea as a convert who goes into a mikvah of 40 cubits of water comes out a new person. Beforehand they were a Gentile, now they're a Jew. The mikvah creates a new person. The same thing is also in every single one of us in our own life. There are 40 days of repentance. The 40 days give the person the ability to change, to become a new entity. A new person, not who they were last year, but a new person that they become this year. When a person asks himself, who do I want to be? Elul is the time, this is the month where we take a moment and reflect and say, what I did last year and what do I want to be this year? How what kind of better person do I want to be? What kind of challenges do I want to avoid? What kind of person am I going to protect to see that my four senses, my hearing, my seeing, my speaking, and all of them will be protected and to be able to be a new entity? The greatest difficulty for any human being is to change their habits. We become stuck. We become creatures of habit. We become people of nature, of habitual behaviors. And all of a sudden, it comes the month of El and we say, you got to change. You got to become a different person. How is that possible? How do we tear away ourselves from that type of behavior that we were doing for so long? Comes the month of El and says, here, here's the ingredient. Shoiftim v'shoiterim. Guard your senses. Avoid the triggers. Avoid the pitfalls. Why do you fall into those type of moods or whatever it may be? Why in these times or why throughout the year did you have those triggers? Because you allowed yourself to be vulnerable to those triggers. But if you start off this month by already protecting yourself from becoming vulnerable to those triggers, you already avoided the greatest problem, having the trigger. You avoided entering the challenge because you don't have the challenge. This is what the Torah tells us. 
we have now the ability in these 40 days these 40 days is the time of the creation whether it's male or female this is when the child this is when the fetus gets its veins its sinews its bones and all the different things that it becomes now a new entity this is when the student learns and understands the 40 years that the student is able to finally understand what the teacher is telling him the same idea is also every single one of us these are the 40 days that gives us the opportunity to transform that we today make that commitment so when it comes Yom Kippur God says you're atoned you're a new person you're a new entity Rebbe Limelech of Lijensk a student of the Magid used to say he says think about it if you have any type of habitual behavior that you ever want to get rid of take 40 days of practicing that opposite extreme if you're a stubborn person by nature take 40 days and behave nonchalant as if nothing bothers you just give be all passive and after those 40 days you will end up someplace in the middle in a normal place the same idea is if you're a person who's lazy by nature for 40 days be strict be intense be make sure that you're on time or whatever it may be and then you'll come to a happy place 40 days gives us the ability to guard ourselves to protect ourselves and to most importantly to change ourselves these 40 days God gives us starting from yesterday the opportunity to change so that when it comes the new year we are not only a new year a new person a new entity and a person that avoiding of all triggers ready to hear the word of God saying I have forgiven you welcome to your new self